Church, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we will read from verse 1 to verse 18. And as Dustin said, this is, we're starting a new series as we begin Advent. We're going to be um, starting an Advent series um, titled Anticipating the Incarnation. Uh, and so over the next few weeks, we will be not in our Genesis text like usual, um, but we'll be looking at various texts. So if you would turn there, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let me read this for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You may be seated. Let me pray as we begin this morning. Father, I ask that as we look to your word, as we see what you have spoken through the prophets and through the apostles. Father, would you give us understanding? Lord, I pray that you would keep us from having ears that don't hear and hearts that don't listen, Lord. Please give us soft hearts to know what the Spirit is saying, Lord. Give us understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I had one of my friends over for lunch. This is one of my friends who is a Muslim, and we've been friends now for a couple years. And every few weeks, we try to meet up just to have lunch and talk and catch up. And so a few weeks ago, as we were meeting up and we were talking, my friend told me, hey, Josh, I have a video that I want you to watch. This is kind of a video of a podcast on YouTube that I want you to watch. So right away, I was interested, and I asked my friend, okay, what's this video? 
I'm curious. And he told me that the teacher that he has at his mosque made a video talking about the top 10 reasons why Jesus is not God. And so I was, again, even more curious. While there are many things that separate Muslims and Christians, and there are a lot of different beliefs between the two religions, this has to be the most important. After all, what makes Christians a Christian is that we believe that Jesus is God and we worship him. But this is unthinkable to Muslims. For Muslims, Jesus is not God, but simply a prophet in a long line of other prophets who pointed to God. So, not long after the conversation was over, I, I sat down, and it was about an hour-long video, and I watched through it. And as I listened to this man's arguments, a lot of them were arguments that I had heard before. Simple arguments, maybe that are not so simple for everyone, but how can Jesus be God if Jesus gets hungry or Jesus gets tired? Because we know that God does not get tired. God does not get hungry. Arguments like this. But there was one argument that I heard that really stood out to me. And the argument was this. If Jesus was really God, why does he only appear in the New Testament? In other words, if God is triune and Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, why do we not see Jesus in the whole first half of the Bible? Why does he not appear until the New Testament? And when I heard this, it made me think, how would many Christians respond to this? How would you respond if someone were to say that Jesus only appears in the New Testament, therefore he can't truly be God? How would you define that? How should we understand this? Because on the surface, it seems easy, especially for a Muslim reading an English Bible, if they do a simple word search, Jesus' name is not found in the Old Testament. So how, how are we to answer this? Is the second person of the Trinity found in the Old Testament? Or does he only make his appearance in the second act, part two of the Bible, known as the New Testament? Well, the answer to that question is going to be what our series is looking at. Over the next couple of weeks, leading up until Christmas, we're going to be asking this question of where do we see hints of Jesus in the Old Testament? And we're going to be diving into different passages and looking to see how the incarnation is anticipated in the Old Testament. So this morning, we are going to focus on the word of the Lord. And then next week, we will hear about the wisdom of the Lord. After that, Dustin Saunders will be preaching on the angel of the Lord. And then finally, Rudolph, on Christmas morning, will tell us why Elf is his favorite movie. Not really. Rudolph on Sunday morning will talk about the child of the Lord. So that is kind of our Advent series that we will be going through. And this morning, as we begin with the word of the Lord, we're going to be starting by looking at John chapter 3, the passage that I read earlier. And, and I read all 18 verses because I wanted to provide us with the context of what John is doing here. But we're really, we're going to be really focusing in on verses 1 through 3. This has to be one of the most 
famous passages in the New Testament that talk about the word. And so we're going to go there and allow this passage to kind of bring us back into the Old Testament to understand what John is doing. So if you still have your Bibles open, you can look down again at verses 1 through 3, and I want to read these again for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this is our text for this morning, and and as we look at this text, I want to structure it by pointing out three important points that John is making. There's much more that you could look at, but I want to look at three points that John is teaching us, that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this passage. And number one, Jesus is the Word. Number two, Jesus was with God in the beginning. And then number three, Jesus is God. And I think as you, we look through the text, that is kind of the order that we see things presented. However, unlike you might expect, we're not going to work our way straight down the list today. So that is what a normal person would do. I know that makes the most sense. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to actually start at the very end. We're going to start with point number three, Jesus is God, and then work our way back to what it means that Jesus is the word. And I hope this won't frustrate you too much. I've done this in order to help us better understand what the word means when we get there. And so we're going to start looking at point three. Jesus is God. And as we look at the opening lines of John's gospel, what we see is that John is making some pretty massive claims about who Jesus is right from the beginning. John is writing his introduction to Jesus. This is a gospel all about Jesus. And John identifies Jesus as the word. And he writes this, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if you've read some of the other gospels, especially Matthew or Luke, you'll know that John's introduction here is pretty unique. John is not taking time to set up the history of Jesus and where he was born, the story of Christmas that we all know with the wise men, the shepherds and the angel, angels. John is not doing that in this introduction. He's jumping straight in. And right from the beginning, John wants us to know who Jesus is. Not from a human perspective, but he wants to zoom out and show us who Jesus has been from all eternity. And John does this because he wants his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. John makes this clear that this is the purpose of his gospel. At the very end of the gospel, we see this as his thesis statement. So, instead of presenting information slowly, instead of building a case and adding some information and let people come to their own conclusions, John is taking a different strategy. Right from the beginning, he's front-loading the most important stuff. Right from the beginning, he wants his readers to know who Jesus is. And if you think about it, maybe this is because this is not the way that John understood who Jesus was. This was not his experience. You see, for John, the author of our gospel, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. 
He was one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus and spent three years of his life with him. But just like the other disciples, John didn't recognize who Jesus was right away. Although all the evidence was right in front of him, he saw the miracles, he was slow to understand who Jesus really was, as I'm sure all of us would be. So John doesn't want us to have that experience. As we come to John's gospel, right from the very beginning, John wants us to know who Jesus is. The man he walked with and talked with and lived with is God. He is not just another good prophet. He is God. And this, this changes the way then that you begin to read this gospel. John is clear right from the very beginning. In verse 3, John writes, All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. So John is showing that Jesus is not simply a God, maybe like a lesser God under the real God. No, no, no. John is showing that Jesus is the creator God. He is the one that has made all things. And John makes this clear. He shows us that if Jesus is the one through whom all things were created, nothing was created without him, well then he can't be in the category of things that were made. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Therefore, Jesus cannot have been made. He himself is the uncreated one, the one that has existed from all eternity. So from the very start, John is showing us who Jesus is. He is God. Not a God, but the God. But as we look at this, as we understand what John is saying, a question should arise. If, if Jesus is God, why does John also write that Jesus was with God in the beginning? How does that work? How can Jesus be God and yet be with God? And this leads us to point number two. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And if you look back at our passage, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then it repeats this in the next verse. John writes, the word was in the beginning with God. So if the word is Jesus, as we know from later in verse 14, why is Jesus both being described as being God and being with God? This is a little confusing. What's going on here? And the answer is that this passage is pointing us to the doctrine of the Trinity. In this one section, Jesus can be described as both being God and being with God. This is possible because the Bible shows us that God exists. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is, this is very different than how the Muslims think about what we believe. They would accuse us of being polytheists. They would accuse us of worshiping three gods. They say, you worship Jesus, and you worship God the Father. Therefore, you worship two gods. But we would say, no, this is, this is the mystery of the Trinity. We worship one God who exists in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This means that Jesus is God, but Jesus is not God the Father. God the Father is God, but he is not Jesus. 
And that's why we can see in this text that Jesus can be called God because he is God and yet be with God. And this is a mystery. We confess that this is a mystery. This is something that we don't fully understand. We can't wrap our heads around. And yet, because this is what the Bible teaches as Christians, we simply affirm what the Bible affirms. And passages like this, like John 1, help us to understand how these two things can be true. John is very clear. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus was with God in the beginning. And now it's, it's that last section. It's that in the beginning that I want to look at for a second. What does John mean here when he's saying that, that Jesus was with God in the beginning? What, what beginning is John referring to? And I think from the text, it's, it's pretty clear that Jesus is referencing the very beginning. The same beginning that Genesis 1-1 references when God created the heavens and the earth. You see, for Jewish readers who heard this for the first time, it would have been obvious to them right away. They would have heard what John was doing, and they would have instantly known that he's making a connection all the way back to Genesis 1-1, because his gospel starts in the exact same way, in the beginning. For you Star Wars fans, it would be like if another movie takes that opening line, that phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instantly, you know there's a connection. Either the movie's spoofing Star Wars and making fun of it, or they're trying to help you connect the dots and see that there's a connection. And, and a lot of people do this in literature. They, they make these connections, and, and John is doing the exact same thing. He wants to make it clear that he's referencing the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, to show that the word was there from the very start. He was the one that was with God, and through him, all things were created. It says, apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Now, if we understand this, if we understand that John is saying Jesus is God, if we understand that John is saying that Jesus was there in the beginning, well, then what it leads us to understand is that for John, Jesus could not have just appeared in the New Testament. When John writes that he was there from the beginning, John must be understanding that Jesus was there in the Old Testament. He was there with God from the very beginning. And we know that John is not the only New Testament writer that believes this. If you look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Paul also writes this way when he describes Jesus. Look at what it says. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So this passage is affirming the same thing that we saw in John 1. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created. And if this is the case, then that means Jesus is not just someone who appears in the New Testament, but he's been there from the beginning. But where is he? Where do we go to see the word 
Where do we go to see Jesus? If we have a friend who is asking us these questions, like my friend is, where do we go to show them that Jesus was there in the beginning? How can we show them and encourage them that Jesus is not just a New Testament author's idea, but that he's actually true, the true God that created all things? And what we're going to see is that there are hints all throughout the Old Testament. There are shadows and things that are pointing forward to the New Testament. And as we, as we think about what these could be, this brings us to our thir- third point. Jesus is the Word. We finally made it back now to the first point, and we're going to look at what John means when he uses the Word. What is John talking about here? And I think for many of us, this is not something that comes, that this is not something that is obvious right away. Out of all the ways that Jesus could have been introduced, why is John introducing him by calling him the Word? I know for me, when I first tried to read this text on my own, I was very confused. I was excited to read the book of John, and people told me that it's a good one for non-believers, and I opened it up, and in the beginning was the Word. Wait, I thought this was about Jesus. And it took me a little while to understand what John is doing. And I think for a lot of us, we have that same reaction. We can miss it if it's, if it's not pointed out or explained to us. For us, the text isn't, isn't clear. But what's interesting is that this is probably not the same reaction that a first century Jew, either a faithful Jewish man or a faithful Jewish woman who knew their Old Testament, would have had. You see, to someone who knew their Old Testament well, they grew up hearing it read, and as they got older, they would read it. They would have understood what John is doing here. And to them, they would have been either amazed or outraged. You see, people growing up in the first century, faithful Jewish men and women knew their Old Testament, and they knew the word or the word of the Lord. This was something that they were familiar with. The word of the Lord is something that appears often in the Old Testament and is so closely related to God that it's impossible to tell the difference between God and his word. Let me show you an example from Genesis. This is the book that we've been going through. And in Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. But then as we continue reading, we learn how God creates. We learn how God creates the heavens and the earth. Out of all the ways that God could have created, we are told that God creates through his word. In the beginning, God spoke through his word and all things came into being. So, using the language of John 1, all things were created through God's word. And without his word, was not anything made that was made. So from the very beginning in Genesis, we see God's word active in creation. And as we keep moving through the Old Testament, what we find is that this is not the only place where the word appears. But as we continue to go, we're going to see the word appear again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself as a God who speaks through his words, through his word. And this is very, this is 
this is very different than the pagan gods that the other nations would have been worshiping at this time. The other gods would make idols of wood and stone, and then they would bow down to them, but these were idols that could not speak. These were idols that could not move. And so in contrast, God is showing himself as a God who speaks, as a God who reveals himself through his word, since his word is a perfect revelation of himself. And one, one really significant passage where we're going to see this, where we're going to see God reveal himself through his word is Genesis 15. So if you want to turn there with me, we're going to be looking at this story in Genesis 15. And this is actually a passage that Dustin will be preaching on in a few weeks. Um, so because of that, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I do want to look at a few of the themes that are interesting about this passage that point us to the word of the Lord. So if you want to open up to chapter 15 in Genesis, this is continuing now the story of Abram before he has his name changed to Abraham. And I'm going to read this story for us. Uh, and, and notice, as I do, where the Lord of the word, uh, the word of the Lord appears. So let me start by reading in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. And since we don't have time to unpack it, and, and I know 
Dustin Rudolph is going to do that later. This can simply be a little teaser to come back and be there for this, that sermon. But I do want to point out some, some interesting things about this passage. Keep your Bibles open and look with me at verse 1 again. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now, this is not the first time God has spoken to Abram, as you know, but it is the first time that the Bible records that the word of the Lord came to Abram. Back in chapter 12, the first time the Bible records God speaking, it simply says, now the Lord said to Abram. But notice in chapter 15, it specifically says, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This time, when God communicates to Abram, it is through his word. And this might seem like a little thing, but there's a distinction. Something is being hinted at. Another thing to notice about this passage is how the word of the Lord comes to Abram. The word of the Lord does not come as a disembodied voice from the sky. He actually comes in a vision. Verse 1 says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So that means that the word is actually visible in some sort of way. And here the Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail, but it seems as if Abram is actually meeting with someone. And this would make sense later on in the passage, as the passage tells us that the word brings Abram outside, and then the word asks Abram to bring animals to him. So all of these hint that there is someone present with Abram in some sort of physical way. Then look with me at the end of the chapter, in that, in that weird section where it talks about this flaming fire pot. The Bible is hinting that there is someone there carrying this smoking fire pot and this torch through the animals. This is a covenant ceremony between God and Abram, and someone is walking through those animals. And again, the Bible doesn't provide us a lot of details, but it does show us that the word is present with Abram making this covenant. And this is, this is interesting. This is just the first book of the Bible, and yet we get these hints that the word is more than just a, a voice. Perhaps the word appears. And this is not the first time we see that God appears to Abraham. Uh, if you one of the passages that we've already studied together is Genesis chapter 12. Um, so if you want to flip back just a few chapters, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 7, says this. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here again we see the Lord is appearing physically to Abram. And this passage is, is different than the passage we just read because it doesn't specifically say the word of the Lord, but it hints at it. And if you look at John chapter 1, verse 18, John gives us a little bit of understanding why this would be the word of the Lord. Let me read for us John 1, 18. It says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So no one has seen God the Father. 
but God the Word, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And this is exactly what we're seeing in Genesis. We see that the Word of God is making God known to His people. And as we continue moving through the Old Testament, what we find is that the, the Word of the Lord begins appearing more and more. And while it's easy to ignore or to miss until it is pointed out, the word of the Lord actually appears a lot more than we think. And this is something that we're going to be diving into. We'll see a lot how the word of the Lord can be described or called different names in the next couple of weeks. But I want to look at one more passage um, that talks about this, uh, God appearing to his people. And this comes from Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Um, This is after the Exodus, the people have come out, and Moses and Aaron and some of the people actually meet with God, and God has a body. Exodus 24, 9 through 11 says this, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So here again, we see that the Lord is coming, not as a voice, but in a physical way to meet with his people. The Lord meets with his people and he has a meal with them. Again, if we look back to John 1.18, This is the word of the Lord, the one who is at the Father's side, who is making God known. Now, as you're you're hearing this, as you're maybe beginning to understand, we have to ask the question, does this mean that people living before Jesus should have been able to understand the full doctrine of the Trinity? As they were reading the Old Testament, should they have been able to understand that the word of the Lord was the second person of the Godhead? And the answer is, of course not. Not enough was revealed to fully understand who God was. God had only revealed small little pieces, and he was adding to the picture over time. And and this is what God does. Instead of giving us the full picture all at once, God slowly, through his word, reveals more and more truth. I love the analogy that Dustin Rudolph used a couple weeks ago describing progressive revelation. He said that God slowly reveals truth throughout the Bible like a door opening to a dark room. At first, only a sliver of light is able to come through. You see shapes and outlines, but at first, that's all. Then slowly, over time, as the door opens wider and wider, more of the light comes in and more of the room is visible. And in the same way, as we move through the Bible, we slowly see clearly the truth about who God is. The truth has been there all along, but it takes time to slowly understand it. And this is how it is with the Word. As we move through the Old Testament, we see hints of the Word. We see hints of what is to come, but nothing is clear yet. Only when we stand in our position, and we're able to look back through the perspective of the New Testament and Jesus, are we able to see the picture more fully? 
If you would now turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And this is, this is the passage that we had for our scripture reading this morning. And for many of you, I'm sure this is a passage that you've heard before. It's a, it's a famous Sunday school story talking about the Lord calling to Samuel. But if you would turn with me there, and I want to look at a few things that speak of the word of the Lord in this section. As you remember, the, the story goes that Samuel is sleeping and God calls to him. Samuel jumps up, believing that Eli has called to him, and so he runs over to him and, and says, here I am. Eli, confused, tells him to go back to bed. God calls to Samuel again, and he does the same thing. And this happens a few times until Eli realizes it's the Lord that's speaking to Samuel. So he tells Samuel, go back. And when God speaks, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. But as we read this story earlier, I wonder if you notice the places where the word of the Lord is present. They could be subtle, but I want to point them out to you. Look with me at 1 Samuel 3.1. It says this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So right from this opening line, we see that the word of the Lord is rare because there's not frequent visions. So the word of the Lord is not just a disembodied voice, but it's, it comes in a vision like we saw earlier. A vision involves something that is seen. And so already we're having hints that there is maybe more than a voice in this story. And if you look down at verse 7, it says this, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And this, this is an interesting statement. On the one hand, we know that Samuel knew a lot about the Lord. He was serving in the temple, and he was a helper to Eli the priest. It even said earlier that he was ministering to the Lord. But on the other hand, the text says that he does not yet know the Lord, and why? Why does he not yet know the Lord? Because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The word of the Lord is the one that makes God known. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word had not yet been revealed to him. All this is about to change, however. After the Lord continues to call to Samuel, and Eli tells Samuel to respond, Look what happens in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So here we see that the Lord is not just a voice, but he's actually coming and standing. The Lord appears with a body, able to stand and then able to call. And the text doesn't give us a lot of information here, but it hints that there's more than just a voice. What it means for Samuel to be introduced to the word of the Lord is for the word to come physically. And while these are little things, these are little hints, little things that foreshadow what is to come, let's look now at the very end of this chapter, and we're going to see something interesting. 
I think the end of this chapter is actually pretty remarkable. Um, the way that this chapter wraps up helps us really see what is being hinted at here. So if you want to skip down with me, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 21. It says this, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then look at this. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So this passage, this little passage at the very end of 1 Samuel chapter 3 really shows us this truth. That the Lord reveals himself by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the one that makes the Father known. Well, now that we have gone through some of these passages, we've, we've looked at how the word appeared to Abraham, Moses, Samuel. You were starting to see these hints. You were starting to see that something is foreshadowed. Something is coming in the future. It's almost as, as if God in the Old Testament is setting the stage. He's getting things ready and looking forward to the incarnation. And as I said earlier, all of these passages, these passages that we've looked at and others, would not have been, um, would not have been unknown to faithful Jewish men and women. They would have been familiar with these passages since they knew their Old Testaments inside and out. And again, they wouldn't have understood fully this concept of who the, the word of the Lord was, but it was something that was on their radar. It was something that they would have talked about and known and probably debated. Listen to what one author writes about how the Jewish people thought about this concept of the word of the Lord. He writes this, The ancient Israelite knew two Yahwehs, one visible, a spirit, the other visible often in human form. The two Yahwehs at times appear together in the text, at times being distinguished, at other times not. Does that sound familiar to, to something that we know? And this author goes on and he talks about how there was something that Jewish scholars called the two powers of heaven. This is, this is during the time where they were writing around the second temple period, around the time when Jesus came. And they had this idea of the two powers of, of heaven. And essentially, this was their way of understanding and being faithful to what they saw in the scripture. So as they read, they saw a transcendent God who is unapproachable, and yet they saw a God who could come down and meet with his people in a physical form. And so to understand this, they had this teaching about these two powers in heaven. And, and this was in no way contrary to their teaching that there is only one God. This was consistent with what the Jews have always believed that, and what they confess. God is one. So it's interesting that they had this idea. This idea, however, was later rejected by later Jewish scholars 
after Christians started coming. So after Christ came, and as Christians began preaching that Christ was the word, he was the second person of the Godhead, all of a sudden, this theology of the two powers in heaven was labeled as heretical. And why? They didn't want the Christians to understand that they also saw this in the text. So as we understand this, now when we go back, we can understand why John begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the word. John is introducing a whole book about Jesus, and he doesn't even say Jesus' name in the first section. He simply describes the word and how the word was with God and the word was God. And then John writes this in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John is showing that this, that this concept that the Jews knew very well, this concept of the word is not simply a concept, but a person. The word became flesh. The word dwelt among his people. The word is not simply a concept or a personification, but is a person, the second person of the Trinity who left heaven to take on flesh and to dwell with sinful men. So John is describing Jesus as the word because that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the word incarnate. And this is why in our Christmas songs, this is what we sing about. Earlier, we sang the song, O Come All Ye Faithful. And in that, there's a line that says this exact same. It says, Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Jesus is the incarnate word that has, a, that has existed from all of eternity. He is God, and yet he was with God in the beginning. Well, how should we respond to this? What should our response be as we hear that Jesus is the word, that John is showing us that Jesus is God? How should we respond? And I want to give us three points of application. Number one, trust God's words given to us in the Bible. Trust God's words given to us in the Bible. You see, as we study Topics like this, we're able to see all of Scripture fitting together perfectly. From beginning to end, Scripture tells us one perfect story about who this God is and how he has saved his people. From even in Genesis, God has written his word so perfectly that we see hints and we see themes being foreshadowed, but yet finally revealed in Christ. And slowly as we move through the Bible, more and more is revealed. This should cause us to confess that this book can only have one author. This book was written by many different people. It was written over hundreds of years. And yet behind all of it, there's only one author. The triune God who has revealed himself through his word. God's word is perfect. 
And so that means for us, we can trust God's word. We can trust that God has spoken and his word is faithful. We can trust that we can live our lives according to what he has given us and be confident that he will never put us to shame. We live in a time where God's word is constantly critiqued, it's constantly challenged, it's constantly questioned. Did God really say? Do you have to follow that part? Well, what if it makes you unhappy? We're constantly questioning God. Constantly trying to wiggle ways, wiggle out of what it means to be obedient to God's word. But God has spoken. God has given us his word and as Christians, we can live according to it. We need to hold it up as our highest standard for truth and and allow God's word to judge us rather than us being the ones that judge God's word. Number two, we worship Jesus because he has accomplished our salvation. John 1 is such a good reminder of why we worship Jesus. As we said before, we don't worship Jesus because he was a prophet. We don't worship Jesus just because he was a good teacher, because he had good things to say, but we worship him because he is the one true God who has always existed with the Father. Jesus is the one who became incarnate and accomplished our salvation. As John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that he lived a perfect life. And yet, he died the death of a criminal, the death of a sinner. He died in our place. Jesus is the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. And this is the good news that we preach. God came and lived with us because it was only as a human that he could perfectly pay for the sins of other humans. But it was only as God that he could be an acceptable sacrifice that was needed. So the word took on flesh to pay for our sins. And having paid them in full, Christ was raised again. Jesus is alive today and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what this means is that there is forgiveness for all who would trust in Jesus. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone will be forgiven and have eternal life. And this is what we saw. John 1.12 says this beautifully. Speaking about the word, John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the way that we respond to hearing that Jesus is the word is by believing the gospel, believing that Jesus is God. He is the one that has accomplished our salvation. If you are here and you've never done that, I want to encourage you to put your trust in Jesus. To confess your sins, to trust him to be the one that takes away all of your guilt. But if you are here and you've you've already done that, continue to trust the gospel. The Christian life is not lived believing in Jesus and then focusing on ourselves. From beginning to end, the Christian life is one of believing the gospel 
relying on Jesus, relying on the grace given to us in the gospel to live the way God calls us to. We need to continue to trust the gospel. And finally, number three, we look forward to Christ's return. So as we think about all that Christ has accomplished, as we looked into the history of what God has done, we should never forget that he's coming back. The word has come. The word was made flesh, and yet we believe that he will return. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we are not people that are at home on this earth. We're simply sojourners passing through. And as we begin this Advent season, we're reminded that we're still waiting. We're waiting for our King to return. We trust that Jesus is ruling now, and yet we believe that there's a greater fulfillment to come. We're waiting for all Jesus' enemies to be made a footstool under his feet. And then Jesus will come. And our job as Christians, as we wait, as we wait for the return of our king is to live holy lives. The Bible says that we are called to be holy as God is holy. And this does not mean that we're going to be perfect, but it means that we strive for holiness. And this Advent season is a good reminder to do just that. So number three, we look forward to Christ's return. And as I close, let me read one more passage for us. I want to read from Revelation chapter 19. And this gives us a beautiful glimpse of what that day is going to be like when Christ returns. Let me read this for us. Revelation 19 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God.